You're now listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast, broadcasting from sunny Orange County, California. Filmmaker, journalist, and film historian, Paul Booth. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. So happy to be here today, as I always am. Our guest is Kate Woods, who is a film and television director. Wow, the list of credits after 35 years. And congrats on a career that long. Thank you. Yeah, it's, um, I'm very lucky for it to have lasted as long as it is. There's always dips um, occasionally, as always is in this business, but I've been working pretty consistently, both at home in Australia and for the last 10 years in um, the U.S. Oh, interesting. If you, before we jump in anything, what what was that like to move your work to the U.S.? Was there anything specific or significant about that? Well, I mean, it was just coming to the center of the um, film universe. It's wonderful uh, industry in Australia, but it's, uh, it's obviously small. It has to be um, from a country like that, but it's got very high quality. It's great training. A lot of us do try to see what it's like um, working in America because it's just the, the center of everything. It's, um, you know, the opportunities are, are vast. And especially, uh, you know, as I um, do mostly television, um, the explosion in television that's coming out of America in the last, you know, well, gosh, for the last 10 years really um, is amazing. There's so many different kinds, you know, there's network television, there's cable television, there's streaming television, and it's completely changed and evolved. And to have been able to catch that wave, oh, excuse the pun, where I <laughs> right. catch that wave is, is pretty amazing. So it was, um, it was a sort of scary venture because you're sort of reaching for something, but I don't regret it. Um, I really love it. Um, I love it. I live now in Santa Monica in California and um, haven't looked back. Oh, that's awesome. Santa Monica is wonderful. You got to love Santa Monica. I do. The pier. Yeah. Last time I was there, it was my 40th birthday. I was there with two buddies from film school and it's just a perfect day. Yeah, it's great. Great. I can walk there. Oh, excellent. I'm jealous. (laughs) You, uh, for, for you out there, t- uh, audience, we're going to discuss the Good Lord Bird uh, uh, that was on Showtime with Ethan Hawke. But just to give you an idea of the diversity here of uh, Kate's directing style, sensibility, uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, uh, Private Practice, which was an offshoot of Grey's Anatomy, House, oh, that would must have been a fun show to direct. Very much uh, so. Yeah, I can only imagine how fun that show is. Um, NCIS Los Angeles. I call that the shut up show because from like five minutes before till five minutes after, nobody could talk in the house because my dad thought the world stopped for that show. <laughs> Good. Person of interest, so many things here. And so the Good Lord Bird will jump right into it. The biggest number one question I had was, you directed episode six. Yes. And there's seven. And I've always been intrigued how a director comes in to set up a finale. Well, first of all, the most important thing is to know where you're coming from, where you're going to, and what you're actually setting up. There's always something in the penultimate episode that is you know, has its own, it has its own significance, I guess. And in this case, I, w- I did the episode where they 
begin the the raid on the armory at at Harpers Ferry. So it's, it's sort of it it kicks all that off. It kicks off the action so that um, the finale really. I mean, it literally was almost from from a scene I ended and and um, was picked up in the in the finale. So at one stage um, I was going to do both, um, but it was just too the, the the penultimate and the finale. But it was just too difficult. They were so big both episodes that it just wasn't um, in the time we had available uh, practical to try and um, put it all together. It was better to, to spread it out amongst um, amongst time and two directors, et cetera, et cetera. But they were kind of, the, the six and seven were really one big episode. Oh, okay. That's interesting because I I was feeling that. I was feeling like it was a like a John Ford Western that just got cut at intermission. Yeah, yeah, that would be a per- perfect way of putting it, absolutely. Now, the cliché question of all cliché questions, Westerns that you went back and looked at, Stagecoach, The Searchers, Howard Hawks, or was there, did you want to kind of just throw caution to the wind and see where you could create your own things with shootouts and all that? My inspiration was was more the series itself, the, you know, to you know, watching the pilot and the previous episodes because it set up a really interesting and very particular style that I really uh, wanted to embrace. And as the um, p- director of photography, Peter D- Denning, was David Lynch's cinematographer, I was very excited to work with him, and he was absolutely wonderful. And we just it was it was almost stylized. It was just on the edge of a uh, very stylized look. And so I spent most of my, you know, sort of inspiration time, if you will, rather than watching the old Westerns, which I would have loved to have done just for the hell of it, I spent my time really studying what made this uh, particular style so special. Wow, that's a really cool answer because it's, it's almost like a, I'm an 80s kid, so when I was watching the way they're trapped inside, it was just making me think of Young Guns. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's imprinted in my brain with Ethan Hawke or Billy the Kid yelling out the door. Yeah. But that uh, cinematography, that was was when we watched the first episode, I remember just saying to my dad, like, what the bleep is this? Because that style you're saying of the cinematography was just amazing. So basically, he shot the whole show. So you guys didn't have, like, rotating? No, Peter shot the whole show. The, the poor man w- 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 was so exhausted by the end. It's really hard <laughs> to do that, really hard, especially in a show like this. But it was great because of that continuity of style. I mean, Albert Hughes set up, you know, they worked together to to create that style, and I just thought it was great. You know, and it wasn't a style I'd used before, so I was learning something and expanding sort of the way I looked at things. Um, I love it when I learn new things on a show. In fact, I, I make sure I do. I always sort of push and stretch myself in a certain way, whether it's to um, play with a different lenses or different type of equipment or, you know, just anything that is going to build on uh, my repertoire sort of work. I love that because that leads me into one of my favorite questions of, did you have a favorite lesson from 
shooting this episode? Yeah, shootouts. <laughs> <laughs> I've done kind of similar, well, you know, s- similar in terms of similar complexity on uh, NCIS LA. There were lots of sort of shootouts and, and things there, which I loved doing. But this was, you know, this was, there were so many different uh, sort of points of view in this Good Lord Bird that, um, you know, you had, it was like a huge jigsaw puzzle. Uh, so that was really great. And the stunt guy was Tarantino's stunt guy. So he was fantastic and could sort of, was so good at sort of offering up um, suggestions of what to do and how to do it and what would look cool and what was the, the sort of limit. And, and so and that included, you know, the, the, there's a big chase, a carriage chase at the end, which I'd sort of never done done before either so you know it's working in period with big action sequences was the thing i took away from that which was fantastic that sequence it's so again cliche it 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 always makes me think of stagecoach yes 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 yeah i must admit i did look at that piece of stagecoach um yeah yeah um (laughs) i really did want to look at different you know moving coach sequences and you know you can't go past that one is there um okay like you have the top stunt i'm always wondering what's going through anybody's brain even though you got the top-notch stunt all that stuff um i heard a great quote from brian grazer one time when he said There was only two times he was ever afraid to be a producer. The one time was when they were shooting near the Mona Lisa. And the other time was when they were doing the Vomit Comet and all of the actors were in that plane that was doing nosedives. Right. So was there a moment where you're just like, there's a coach and there's people and we're going however fast we're going? Like, Yeah, the scariest time was what they have to do, of course, is they call it blind driving. So it looks like the guy sitting on the coach, you know, holding the reins is controlling the coach, but that's not true. The reins are actually, um, there are other set of reins which you don't see that are going inside the coach and the real driver is in there. I suppose I'm giving away trade secrets here, but... Um, it's uh, that's the way it's done because you don't want the actors actually having to control the coach because they're not, you know, it's it's a highly skilled job. But can you imagine they're kind of seeing, they can barely see um, what they're doing and they have to control those four or six horses. So I think it's pretty amazing. And they the if you if the horses do it too many times, they get very excited and they tend to sort of go faster and faster each time. And there was one time that um, they kind of got a little bit out of control and sort of took off and, it, you know, and then one of them got out of step and it took a moment to sort of get it all um, back under control again. I must admit my heart stopped then, that's for sure. Wow. Thank you for explaining that. That was... That was such a great sequence. It is, yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing it. It looks, you know, that dust flying. And there's nothing like... Horses, uh, you know, stretched out doing their um, their best. You know, they're such amazing animals. But you know, that whole that whole setup, you know, was uh, pretty amazing. Now, there's uh, obviously the credits. Uh, these, as some people may not know, um, some of the titles differ from television to film, like executive producer and and yeah. uh, writer and some producers not just but obviously as you know they're writers of the show but they're called producers as opposed to they don't fundraise to put Grey's Anatomy on or yeah. uh, all that stuff so 
if you're allowed to say, but if not, the was Ethan Hawke one of the showrunners? Oh, absolutely. It was his idea. I mean, he got the rights to the book. I mean, he was born to play John Brown. Don't you reckon he was fabulous as John yes, Brown? Yes, he was. <laughs> you know, he just captured that kind of edge of madness. He was, Ethan was across everything. He's an incredibly smart human being. He's really passionate. He's got such a Great presence. I mean, he's beyond movies. He's a movie star and a fabulous actor. And working with him was one of the highlights of my career, without doubt. It kind of went by people that he, filmmakers and people like us were such nuts, right? And we want to just see who wrote it and who made it. And and so it's like, I remember when I first saw that he wrote the Before Sunrise and Before Sunset films. Mm-hmm. And then I started noticing where writing would pop up and then... Uh, just I loved him in Boyhood and because of my age everybody was just so into him because reality bites and so when I saw this other than Training Day which is my favorite film of his I really was just kind of like is that beard real I don't think he can grow a beard that long um (laughs) it was (laughs) no no it was he grew a grew a beard enough to uh stick that big uh beard onto his face um, no. Ah, okay. Yeah, he was, the facial hair was false, but he grew his hair really long, so it looked wild like that. He did look very John Brownish throughout the production. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, what you said about the passion, that's what I loved so much about the character. And then, of course, knowing what you guys have to do to be involved with writing and produce. And I've directed some short films, and I don't even think I could do a cameo if I was directing. So it's pretty insane. It's pretty insane. It it, it is. I really admire those that can do it. But this was such a passion project for him. You know, he gave it every ounce of his being. You know, he was great. You know, he was – he really did – stay across everything and support everybody from, you know, as a producer, as an actor, as a writer. Yeah, pretty Herculean effort. How many days was your, was your episode to shoot? Um, I can't remember it was 10 or 11, something something like that. Wow. Yeah. That, that, sh- that shootout at the end, I mean, I've never gotten to really ask anybody, like, when you sit down and you look at 11 days, do you go, okay, you know what? we're just going to have to deal with dialogue in three because we need eight for a shootout. I mean, how does, how does that process work? Um, well, a little bit, but you don't need that, that, that amount for the shoot off. You need it. We need, I think we shot it in about two and a half days. I think wow. maybe a bit more because it wasn't shot all together, but two solid days were together. And then, um, uh, that's just the outside. The inside was, was, it was on top of that. So let's say four days, Altogether for oh, maybe five, but it's about being really organized. You have to know exactly what you're doing, so you're not wasting time working things out. It's all already to go, it already worked out to right down to where the where the um, people are going to drop. De- you know, like where the, the stunts are going to be, who's going to die, who's going to not die. You know how many? You know it's it's all like a big jigsaw puzzle that, where you know exactly where each piece is going to go, so you can just execute shots that you need one by one. It's more organisation than anything else once you get on on set. But it's so much. I mean, if you are organised and if you are prepared, it's so much fun because you just let it all happen. I every day I would go home, I was just black 
with gunpowder residue and, you know, my hands and face. It was, you know, ev it was everywhere. All my uh, script uh, books and stuff like that. I'm still covered in um, gun residue from that shit. <laughs> I would love to know if as a director, there's something that you've always wanted to discuss about directing and journalists or show hosts don't just don't ask. What a what a great question. You know, it's such a it's such a multi hatted job, you know, and 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 the major the, the majority of it is the sitting at home with a script with a piece of paper and a pencil if that's how you do it or if you like to do it on computer and nutting it out that's a you know that it it look it feels like directing is you know standing on the set calling action and cut and being the the um uh, master of ceremonies and talking to the actors and the crew and stuff but that's really kind of like the tail end um the real work as a director is the nutting out of it the working with the writers and the producers um, to make sure that you in, you interpret everything the right way, working out the rhythm of a of what the emotions are going to be, literally from start to finish. And sometimes you, I actually map it out, you know, and, you know, for certain characters. So it's it's actually, funnily enough, a much more in um, interior job. A, like a writer's, it's much more like that than you than you think. It's just that you've got to keep changing your hat from quiet contemplation to you know, um, being the, in the middle of, uh, in the thick of it all. I think that's the that's the one thing I've always wanted to talk about as a director that m most people don't often talk about. I mean, because we all know there's so many facets. Yeah. That leads us into something that I just had mentioned that I wanted to ask uh, Kate a few things about because she directed Hawaii Five-O and buddies of mine crew that. Name of the episode was Ki'i Ilua. Yeah. And it investigates the death of muckraking reporter. Jenna returns to ask McGarrett for help finding her fiance in North Korea, which is actually part of Wofat's revenge plot. And Joe White leads the mission to bring them home. It was, a, it was a basically apocalypse now in eight days. It was all set in helicopters. You know, they swoop into for as a rescue mission i mean i'd never worked with helicopters before so that was my learning big learning curve on that show that was fascinating wow a hell that okay so you were in there yeah, it was a great it was a great episode it was a great story and lots of fabulous action yeah it worked out worked out really well it was just, it was a real stretch to do it but um it was worth it now other than the helicopter thing, was it because you're from uh, Australia? Was the process better because Hawaii is mellow and it's surrounded by the Pacific? And so were you able to kind of jump into cru cruise there easier? Easier. Um, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't easier in that regard. But being an Australian and being born in the in the surf, being close to the water and being able to swim when I wasn't working kept, helped keep me grounded and calm. I really enjoyed that. It was, uh, it was beautiful. But it was uh, the being in Hawaii itself was very, very calming, even though you're in the middle of a, you know, a high-profile, high-energy show. 
there is something to uh like when we're on alexander payne's the descendants a couple of days the office was on the beach so i was like i remember picking up my production check i literally thought i was robbing the production i was like like, i just spent a week on the beach watching a director i love and just kind of hanging out and meeting other crew from honolulu and why are you guys paying me? I know. Some, some, sometimes you do <laughs> say, think, you know, I really, I, and they're sending a paycheck. It's not right. So I think, you know, some of the times on, on that show, I felt like, I felt like that too, um, you know, because it was such um, an exciting thing to do. And I was by the water, which I need to be, um, hence living in Santa Monica, California. Um Right. Just move. I've just moved from one side of the Pacific to the other. Um, yeah, so it 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 was a big added bonus. There's n- no doubt about it. Outside of the helicopter thing, did do you have a favorite, specific, or best lesson from Hawaii Five O? Uh, that was the big one. It was a a new show and a new show for me. So everything was uh, as a sort of lesson, uh, really. But that that was by far the the biggest biggest challenge was sort of to to get all the um, helicopter stuff done and and there was an enormous amount of help to do it you know there was the um, stunt coordinator and the and and the coordinating direct uh, producer director that's sort of there to you know bring all that kind of thing together he was really really helpful and I learned a lot from him it was great yeah that there was there's no doubt that that was the biggest thing. Now, this was also, in the beginning, you were, um, I know Daniel Day Kim was so popular. Not to sound naive here, but when this says Jimmy Buffett, was that the Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett? Yes, it was the Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett. He just, he contacted the production and said, I love the show. Can I be in it? And they they decided that the perfect job for him was to be the helicopter uh, pilot. Uh, he was so delightful and he did a great job. Yeah, it was it was just a fun thing to do. Yep, it was Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> That's classic. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, he just rang up and said, can I be on it? And I'm like, oh, okay, sure. I think I'm going to call Denzel's next movie and see if that works for me. <laughs> Probably won't, but never say never, huh? Yeah, never say never. Um, so I guess I would wrap by saying if there's any other show that was uh, that you would just want to mention that holds a uh, special place for you i would love to know what it was i think the well, there's actually two um because of the great people i worked with and i just thought they were brilliant fabulous shows one was underground about the underground railway during the slave slave years and working kind of with the same people uh, a show called unsolved which was about the death of Tupac Sakur and Biggie Smalls and, you know, how they were interconnected. They were just, I had the best time on them and they were really great shows. And on Unsolved, for example, I was the only uh, white director. I was so honoured to be part of it and I just had a ball. They were just fantastic people. So, yeah, that would be one that I hold high, hold very dearly can you tell us who did it uh there was it was just the production company and a and a um a producer and director called anthony hemingway who was part of both who i just really admired and um he just did great work and i was very thrilled to be working with him he was the he was the common thread that's really cool 
uh, that you mentioned the Underground Railroad on the Kentucky-Ohio border. Right. And if you go like about three miles down the road in Ohio, there's a part that says this is where the Underground Railroad was. Yeah. They have footprints in the middle of the road and say that whole, you know, they had to walk in the middle of the road because the side knew that they were sneaking. Yeah. So thank you for putting that into the world, something like that. Yeah. I was unaware that the, there was a non-documentary, I, I see this is just within the last two years, of yeah. Biggie and Tupac. Yeah. Definitely was when I was in high school was the biggest thing when that happened. So. Abs- so. Absolutely. Uh, well, this whole, they call it, the, the series was called Unsolved because they never really solved who right. killed Biggie. You know, it was it was basically about the investigation and the two two young men that played Biggie and Tupac were just amazing. Yeah, it was a, just a, a joy an, uh, of an experience. For the, like, it, it, it makes sense and it just runs in our world. I always joke that, like, Dre, Snoop Dogg, Tupac is, like, my mom's Elton John and Led Zeppelin. Yeah. How do you approach a story that's, like just a different country and a different time and a different uh, culture. Oh, exactly. You couldn't get more. You couldn't get more different culture than than mine. Um, you just do research. You just find out about as much as possible. And obviously, I I knew about them and I knew their music and stuff. You just dig deeper. The the series was based on a book, so you know you. I read that and I read all or or. Um, uh, a, a lot of other material on it. I saw, you know, documentaries and um, uh, other films on it. Just, you know, stuff your head with as much information as possible um, so that you get the details right. Oh, okay. So you had to walk around. You had to go around with uh, Thug Life and all that playing in your car? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. All eyes on me and all yeah, that. Yeah, all that. Yeah, uh, yeah. You kind of dive in and live it. Great Sorry, you, you dive in and live it and breathe it. Yeah. We will go into our wrap here, and we just want to thank you again for coming in and talking to us about this and sharing your experiences. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed this, and I'm glad we could have this talk. And thank you very much for inviting me. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, take care and best best wishes on your next project. Thank you. Best wishes to you too and with the, the show. Thank you. And aloha. And aloha. Thank you for listening to the Talking Pictures Podcast. Real conversation and movie-induced inspiration. <laughs>